Do you remember being away from home for the first time in college? I do. What was it like? I do. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I'm one of three children, and I was the first to go away to college. Mm. And I just remember that it hit both my parents differently. Like, my mom was super ready for it. She was a stay-at-home parent, so I'm probably, I'm thinking that she probably was like. She's like, get out. Yeah, free time. Yep. No, just kidding. No, my mom is great um but my dad really took it hard really and he used to call all the time and I had a roommate um and he would call like at six in the morning because he was up and had had coffee my roommate you know basically your dad would call at six yeah just like hey how's it going (laughs) you know like (laughs) just like just checking in just so my mom finally had to tell him like you know you don't need to do that Mm. she'll she'll come home when she's ready I was terrified and then I got over it pretty quickly and had a pretty good time and didn't go home till Thanksgiving. How about you? Well, and you were even, you, you, you were what, like maybe an hour from your home? Yes, I was very young. I was 17 when I went to college. Whoa. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, now that I have children, I think my parents, I can see how they would have been just terrified. But, you know, um, and so, yes, I think abject terror mm-hmm. was my first <laughs> feeling. <laughs> How about you? My first big panic. Uh-huh. And I remember it. It there was a general feeling that I was just kind of on my own and things I had taken for granted just wouldn't be there. And the way that was concretized at first was the <laughs> issue of laundry. Oh. Realizing had you ever done your own laundry before? I had. It okay. wasn't like my mom did all of my laundry. Right. I think I did a lot of it. I think sometimes especially as I got older I was like I just need my clothes and so right. I do my own. Right. But I think like just realizing that I had to figure out a new way to do that. Oh, right, right. Was like you had like, to go find I the had place. To fi- right. You that, had to pay for it. That was the thing right away. <laughs> and hey, in our situations, dear students, we were not tossed into exile, as our dear Israelites are now at this yes. point, at this critical point in the story. But we did leave our homelands for a while, especially you, Brian. You left. You. Some of our students may not know this, but mm. you're from rural Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from rural or rural, depending rural. on rural <laughs> Wisconsin. I'm from rural Wisconsin. And then rural you went Southeast. to where? Missouri? Well, at first I went to a school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My my first undergrad was called Cardinal Stritch University. Okay. And I did live there, but it was about an hour from where my parents lived. And so yeah, that's a short, I could go short, home and right. you know so on. Mm-hmm. Then I went to school in southern Missouri. I transferred between that's my sophomore and junior year. And then then it so I had like two moments when that hit home to me. Mm-hmm. Um did I feel expelled from my homeland? Not really. Well, that's a longer story that um, <laughs> should be told. You're another. going to talk about it with your therapist. Yeah, we'll talk about that later yeah. with others around, you know, um, the therapy table, let's just say. Um, well, I think, you know, regardless, that that little tiny, um, you know, in in your own life, it's a huge change. But mm-hmm. that that's kind of like a smaller version of this much bigger yes. idea, which is an entire people group. Right. being forced out of their homeland and all the things, you know, that you think of, the sights, the smells, the the feelings that you feel in in your homeland, all of that changing. Right. And it's not your decision. Not your decision. I think there's a there's a pretty big there's a feeling of empowerment that comes when you're like I'm deciding I'm, I'm going to college out. I'm striking out on my right. own whatever you do and you can still experience all of the problems and you can still return home you can have parts of that pattern but to be driven out Ugh. which is the biblical pattern of exile 
Um, must just, it's something, as I said in, in the video lecture, it's not something I've experienced, but it's something that um, um, if anyone's been, you know, driven out of their home uh, to evacuate for a fire, for example, which is mm -hmm. becoming a common thing on the mm -hmm. West Coast for us, unfortunately, or you worldwide, know, if you're a refugee, worldwide, if you're yes. a refugee, just like yes. that, that must come with a really special set of feelings. And that special set of feelings is encoded deeply into the Bible. And it's encoded deeply in the Bible because it was a real historical experience that Israel had. A, 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 some portion of their population was taken by force when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC and taken away to Babylon. And that group was there in exile. And then parts of that group, at least, came back to the land. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were two of our core books for this week, actually narrate that story of coming back to the land and what it would retail what it would take to reestablish a community you know the older i get the more i'm interested in that historical period for israel oh, really? well you know one of the things that's interesting to me is like how people are created and i'd love to hear mm. you reflect on this because you're you're a biblical scholar but one of the things that strikes me about you know the the older i get is how your life circumstances change you yeah. and so when I'm imagining like a, like a group of, of people of Israel are forced out, but not everyone is, right? right. And they stay, right. they develop, and then the exiled people develop, and then when they have to come back together, mm -hmm. it's like oh. pain and suffering and frustration. Oh my gosh, and confusion, mm -hmm. conflict. Now this is actually, on the, on the title of our, of our midweek podcast, I need to know more. This is something like if students, if you want to take a little bit of a deeper historical dive into the nitty gritty here, this is an I need to know more. Mm -hmm. I need to know more moment, okay? So this is actually a debate that biblical scholars have. This is a debate that historians have that you just brought up, Dr. Payne, unwittingly or wittingly. <laughs> wittingly, I think, because you know about these issues as well. Um, this is a debate that historians have, that biblical scholars have, that that is 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 like a deeply potentially painful cultural debate, even. That's right. About the exile, and it's like this: you could read parts of the Bible and get the impression that when the Babylonians come in 586 BC and they burn down the temple and they ruin the monarchy, although not fully for Christians, the monarchy lives on and through Jesus in both real and symbolic ways. That's a separate. That's 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 a main issue. Here, but we're yeah. just going to pause that for a moment. But um, when they do that, you could get the impression that they take this group of exiles and it's like essentially they round up every last man, woman and child mm -hmm. and bring them all in one big group into to Babylon, into exile. But actually, this is not how the story is narrated as Dr. Payne savvily uh, was very savvy to allude to. Savvily? Savvy? Savvy? Why not? Is that Why even not? a word? <laughs> I don't even it. care what words are anymore. Okay, but I wanted to turn to um, to the end of the book of Second Kings. And you can find this also at the end of the book of, of Jeremiah because Jeremiah and Second Kings actually overlap. Jeremiah is a prophet who lives during this time of the destruction and just right afterward. Um, so basically, um, what happens and this is in 2 Kings 25, describes the fall and captivity of Judah. Uh, 2 Kings 25, 11, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the Babylonian guard, carried into exile the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, all the rest of the population. So if you stop there, you're like, they, cle what? they cleared out yes. the land. It's an empty land. And the land would have remained empty then until those exiles returned. However, read the very next verse. 
But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers and tillers of the soil. So you have a hint right there that the land was not empty, but that there was some lower social and economic class that was left behind. And then an upper class, a literate class, a ruling class was taken away into exile. So already you have like class conflict here. Well, you have a power thing going on. Correct me if I'm wrong, too. But now I study class in the 20th century and, Mm -hmm. you know, just before the 20th century. And so tell me if things have changed since the ancient world. But usually Mm. if you're going to do like a a pie graph of how many rich to poor people you have, the poor people throughout history outnumber the wealthy people by quite a lot. So if you're you're taking all the wealthy folks, you could potentially not be taking that much the, I'm saying that there could have been a significant amount of the population oh, that right. was left back in the homeland, right? Oh, I, I totally. So we're not given numbers. Um, we're not given stats or, or facts and figures. We do know, though, that biblical authors definitely, speaking of things that haven't changed since the ancient world, <laughs> we do know that biblical authors definitely engaged in value judgment and moralizing language about either the people who were left behind or the Mm. exilic group. Like, could you imagine if you were some of the people left behind, you could imagine coming up with like a a kind of like a spiritual political theology that says those people were punished for their sins and taken away. That's true. That's true. I could imagine that. You could imagine that, right? And you could also imagine... If you're the people who've been taken away. If you're the people who've been taken away, and you don't even have to imagine this because in fact... There are biblical authors who engage in this. I'm thinking of Jeremiah and Jeremiah chapter 24. There's this, um, there's this scene of of good. There's a parable of good figs and bad figs. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. The word. This is what Jeremiah says, chapter 24, verse four. The word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is Jeremiah, someone who lives through this destruction in 586 BC. So that's why he's relevant. Um, thus says the word, the word Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place, the land of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans means Babylonians. I will set my eyes upon them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs in this image that came just prior to what I started reading, um, so will I treat... Zedekiah of Judah, his, the last king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who live in the land of Egypt, I will make them a horror and I'll drive them out. And it's like this really nasty language. So you could get through here and I'm splicing together some other things you could imagine like in Isaiah and Ezekiel, a theology that says that those who were taken away were actually the ones who were purified and were in fact treated and they have suffered. And so they will be treated in a special way by God. Well, so setting actually, up this conflict, right, in the land. That actually makes a, a little bit of sense if we look at some of the stories that are said to take place in that time period anyway, like mm-hmm. the story of Esther mm-hmm. or the story of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Like these kind of striking stories of the difficulty of being a foreigner Mm -hmm. in a much more powerful empire and having to negotiate because in those stories all those little cultural identity markers start to stand out yes and um and it and at least in the case of daniel 
it ends up being um, something that almost gets him killed. <laughs> oh, Daniel. I mean, this is a book we don't even have time to treat. In a I know. It's so I know. sad. It's so sad. It's a this fun is one. Why, y- this is kind of maybe becoming like a frustrating thing. That I felt bad pe- bringing it up. No, but no, it's no. It, it's, you know. The book of Daniel is like a prime exilic book. But this has become a common lament from us that we're, we're always cringing. We're having a cringe fest <laughs> at the things we can't talk about. As you may have noticed, students, when you read the Bible, when you when you hold the physical too Bible, much. there's too much. It's there. really long and there's too much there. Yes. And like we care about all of it. And you probably many of you probably care about many things that we didn't even talk about. And you're like, I can't believe you didn't talk about fill in the blank. And it's like, yes, just just know that we're with you on that. But the book of Daniel is a book. If you have time to just sit down and read the book of Daniel, you won't be disappointed. It's stories of people who are taken away in exile and they immediately have to face challenges. Will they eat foods that they're not supposed to eat according to their ritual code? Remember the book Mm -hmm. of Leviticus and Mm -hmm. the clean and unclean foods. So they have to make a decision. Will they worship other gods in the foreign land? How will they survive? I mean, the books of Ruth and Esther are about this issue, even though they're set in the Bible in very different time periods. They're about this issue of how do you survive in a different place? One of the things that, um, so my first adult moment thinking about exile and the pain of it, at least as it's described in the scriptures, was when I heard this folk tune. Now, students, this is music that you're like, maybe great grandparents would have listened to. <laughs> but there's this beautiful folk tune called um, By the Waters of Babylon. Oh. And it's a take on. Is it in the Psalm. public domain? Should we look it up? Yeah, yeah. It. Don McLean. By Don, the ba- Don McLean. By the Waters of Babylon. By the Waters of Babylon. It's a uh, a musical version of Psalm 137. Oh, really? Oh my goodness! I can't believe you haven't heard it. It is. So if I play a little bit of this on YouTube, will it come on over the recording? Yes. That's the question. Uh, let's see. Oh wait, that's a that's a political oh, ad. A political ad. ad. Okay, ah! I just I just tried to play. Okay, uh, okay I can skip Here the ad though. Here we go. So this is the start of it here. Okay, okay, I'll just stop it there. That's beautiful. It is I don't know, how, uh, students. I, I had to. I was trying to hold the headphones up to the microphone. I don't know whether that came through or not. I guess yeah, we'll have to see. It's, Google it by the waters of Babylon. We'll have to see later. If, and, if that was all I garbled and weird, sorry, students. But. It's a folk tune, <laughs> and basically, it's Psalm one thirty-seven to song, and it is this poignant and very mm. painful. Um, it's it's the experience of captivity by the waters of Babylon. We mm-hmm. lay down and wept and wept for these Zion. So it's a it's from the perspective of the people who've been yeah. um, taken out of their homeland. And I had never experienced like the that feeling, the feeling of sorrow for mm-hmm. those people. And it got me to thinking about how much beautiful art comes out of this kind of suffering. Like a oh, lot of yeah. the readings that the students are reading this week mm-hmm. are it's artistic renderings. Right. Of of their experiences. You're an artist. How does that strike you? Well, I, I like art. I'll, I'll go that far. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think like take the book of Ruth, for example, like you might be like, why were we reading Ruth this week? The book of Ruth, the very first line, it says in the days of the judges. OK, biblical scholar moment. Um and you might be able to get on board with this. You might not. If if this excites you, you just might be a biblical scholar. That's right. If it does not, you you just might have to just hang in there. But like, for instance, scholars do a lot of analysis on books 
of the Bible and on language and of all kinds of things to try to determine who the author was and at what date something was written. In other words, because it becomes important for scholars to understand context. Context is very important for scholars of a particular type that we might call in the historical yes, analysis yes. model. And that's what we share disciplinary wise. Yes. Context. Like history. We're context, interested. Context. Yep. And so, and there are a lot of contexts to any written work. For instance, you have a context of reception, which reception history is a really important um, scholarly method and, and, and really body of theory that's been really important. Like how do people receive things in all kinds of eras? Like how were people reading the book of Ruth in, in the medieval period, in mm-hmm. the year 1100 mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. particular country? How do they read it now when people write like romance novels about Ruth? Right, that's all right. All that kind of stuff. That's right. But another context is the context of the first authorship and readership. And so uh, as I think I said it in the video, this is actually important. This is why I say if this excites you, you could be a biblical scholar. The, the, the period of the period depicted in a narration doesn't mean that that's when a book was written. And just because a book is narrated in a narrative form doesn't mean that the genre is history. Mm. It could be or it could not be. But that is not you are not permitted to just make that assumption. I don't think without any other explanation. That's my view. OK, so like when the book of Ruth starts off in the days of the judges, Ruth was doing, you know, this and this happened. Okay, we have to ask questions about genre and authorship. Many scholars think, for complicated reasons, which I'd be happy to talk with you about over a cup of coffee, oh students, that a book like Ruth is actually written in a time period much later than the time period it narrates. So, is it is in the days of ju- the judges a sort of ancient Israel way of saying once upon a time? Yes, like it's a folk tale. I kind think. Of? So, I, I think so. I think that that's, makes sense. I think that's the right genre now. Admittedly, those the, 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 the very savvy among you, the, the smart, the, the little whip smart Bible students will be like, wait, <laughs> isn't there a genealogy at the end of that book that I love um, the genealogy that that requires that the book be history as a genre? Maybe I think that's it's more complicated than that, though, to put it uh, in one way. Like, for instance, the geneal the book could be written around the genealogy, which is, in fact, an historical kernel in the book to mm-hmm. explain a scenario. Um, so I think a book like Ruth, to answer your question, is a very artistic rendering. It's a very, it's an emotional and imaginative rendering, um, which you know shows the value of a Moabite woman. Whereas you have in Ezra and Nehemiah very difficult things, and this was talked about in the video, difficult moments about intermarriage and about foreigners and about Israelite identity. And so I think in this period of exile, whether Ruth was written a long, long time ago before the exile, or whether it was written during the exile or at some point like that, which a biblical scholar would typically say, regardless. You do have within scripture a kind of living, um, active, you know, diverse set of voices about how a community is supposed to accept an outsider. And I think that seeing all of that, yeah, you could say as a student, you could be like, man, that's confusing. Just tell us how it is, Bible. <laughs> okay, but it's, is it confusing or is it beautiful? Like, is it something actually complex and gritty and real? I take that latter approach. Like, that's how I see it. But the book of Ruth shows how an outsider, someone from another country, Ruth, who is from Moab, could actually be grafted into that community and become part of it. Even as other books like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah show, and Esther, I think, to some extent, show how when you're in a foreign place or when foreigners try to come in, those identities become things to, to be guarded, in fact. Well, I think one of the the beautiful passages that some of you may have heard at a wedding that comes from oh, the yeah. book of Ruth is that famous line that Ruth says mm-hmm. um, that kind of captures her approach 
to mm-hmm. entering the land, mm-hmm. which is your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It's sometimes it's actually often used at a wedding, right. which actually makes me a little bit sad. Maybe this is just me being an academic and being kind of, you know, obnoxious. But I think the idea of joining a family in a non-romantic way mm-hmm. um, is very powerful and beautiful. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I kind of wish it would be taken out of the romantic Right. setting because that's not it's actually a woman adopting the students you know this because you read it for this week um a woman adopting her mother-in-law you know adopting her whole right. world and her whole right. life and and like a self-imposed exile well i think that this is a great point to bring up to the metaphors that we use about what it means to to have faith like one metaphor like i i think a lot of the kids these days let's just say kids, <laughs> these, kids these, these days, days we're definitely kids getting these days <laughs> are used to it's it's i think for y'all and for a lot of the lot of the popular contemporary worship music even when i was in college actually this was true it's very romance based mm-hmm. which is great and there's precedent Love for that it. in the bible there's precedent for it in the bible song of songs great hello mysticism we've yeah we there. covered that we've been there um but here is the thing it's not the only metaphor and i think you can overdo that metaphor to the exclusion of other ones like to be a part of the family of god to have a a brother or sister in christ as we may say as christians i mean this is the language in the new testament when paul writes he Mm -hmm. says adelphoi brothers like he calls people it's familial in fact the very word christian that ianos ending in latin means of the household of Mm. or of the family of christ Mm -hmm. so that that language actually being a brother and a sister, a familial, is actually just as important, I think, in a biblical sense to this like romance, like, oh, I love you, God. Right, Jesus right. is my boyfriend. I love you. You could almost like, I change like that th- stuff. I think I like it better than you do. That's okay. You could, I I'll, like it. I'm not, I'm not against it. It's not the only it, model. But it's not the only model. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, th- I totally agree. Um, especially when you think about people who have been forced out of their homeland, like mm. what the, what, um, belonging means mm-hmm. to a group of people who've experienced that. And then what a story like Ruth tells us about mm-hmm. like how the people of God are created. Mm-hmm. That's pretty striking. Yeah. And uh, yes, I love it. Plus it's just fun storytelling. There was so much stuff here, students about, Oh man, we gave you those dates. 1,927 or 1,200, 1,927, 2586, 539, 515. I just want to ping you. I just want to ping, ping, zing anyone out there who didn't watch <laughs> the video and you think you can get away with not watching the video. It's like, Oh, there are dates. Those dates are just going to come up my friends. And just to be an hint, educated, hint. good Bible reader, you have to have some basic historical frame on which to hang this to know what comes before what and like what the story is. So, and this is one of our goals actually for the course is like knowing the plot of the Bible. So knowing some of these dates, even if the dates aren't perfect, like I said, the Exodus, just let's just say 1200. Well, people debate whether the Exodus even was an historical event or if it was when it occurred. I'm, I'm shortcutting that debate. I'm saying sure. that, that debate is to be had. I love it. I'm all about it, but I'm saying 1200. Okay. I Deal with it. One so. thing to point out to the students um, is how much unrest and movement there is in this narrative, in this oh, story. Yeah. So, you know, if, if David, if the Davidic reign, like this kind of golden age of stability happens mm-hmm. around a thousand and then the kingdom splits mm-hmm. around 920. Yeah. That's a short window. The rest of the time is just scramble, right? Do you notice that? <laughs> That's really, you think like, oh, Israel, they get a king. It's like glorious. No, it's just three For kings like, in a row. Like a little, uh, just a minute. 
I mean, in terms of the yep. longer arc, they've just yep. had a very tumultuous history. Saul, David, Solomon, the, the so-called united monarchy, just those three kings, it doesn't last for very long. Then you have the kingdom splitting into north and south. Then that north is destroyed in 720 by the Assyrians. What happened there? Okay, Ugh. that's another moment of exile, by the way, because the Assyrians actually took exiles as well and intermingled some people. They brought in people from other countries. They intermingled them in there. And you have the kind of deep roots of the creation of a group that's going to come up in the New Testament called the Samaritans who live in the northern yes. part of the country. That's based in this moment in the biblical narrative. Do you know what? Oh, so. you know what's so fun about the Bible is that there are all these tiny little stories that the Bible is not like the murder hornets thing where it's like just random story that happened <laughs> in, a, in a particular year. For those of you, 2020, who may or may not, the there murder was horn this time in 2020 where a lot of things were happening. And then there was like this story about murder hornets killing bees, which is actually really big and important. Yeah. But then like the story just kind of disappeared we weren't sure what happened i heard after so that. i heard someone say this is the proof we've been looking for that we're living in a simulation because <laughs> the simulators introduced the murder hornet plot but right. then they forgot about it that's and, like, right they abandoned that go? plot why did it happen to but it but this isn't like that the bible yeah. has these big storylines mm -hmm. that keep coming up again right. and i love the stories of the samaritans i think we yeah. need to come back to that because oh. i think it's a fascinating story yep. they come back in the ministry of jesus they just keep coming back so. The north is destroyed in 720. Jerusalem, though, destroyed in 586, and we have this painful moment. The Persians, though, under Cyrus, they come in in 539. This is really, when you start the book of Ezra, this is the kind of stuff that's getting narrated. And then by the time you get to the rebuilding of the second temple in 515. Oh, there's a point. We, we got to get to our text from today, but I yes. can't resist bringing up this one poignant okay, moment from the book of Ezra, which I'm going to quickly find. <laughs> um, so Ezra begins with the, the edict from King Cyrus to release the exiles. And, and students, if you're reading along, you will definitely read this, the end of the Babylonian captivity. There's a list of exiles. I love seeing a list in these books of names because that's Ezra and Nehemiah are all about list. Who is in and who is out? This I is, love those. This actually, is like cultural identity 101, like who belongs and who does mm -hmm. not. It's very intense. They restore worship, though, in chapter three. And this is a fascinating moment they, they rebuild kind of like the base of the temple this is Ezra chapter 3 verse 10 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals they're going to get this thing going again right and they sing a song it's a little poem there for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid they're going to rebuild it but verse 12 but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, mm. the one that Solomon built, yes. the one that the Babylonians destroyed, when they saw it, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the house, though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Ugh. What an amazing scene that is. You know... The first thing that comes to mind for me, I mean, I, I don't know about you students, but I feel all the feels when I imagine that. Um, I, I think especially as I get older to think about yeah. like a, a pain when you're young and then like that, n that kind of grief, if you're thinking this is where the house of God is, that mm -hmm. kind of grief would not leave you. And so I can't imagine the mix of grief and joy that mm -hmm. would, you know, like be in your heart when you're experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And then I also think about, what um how that that reverberated throughout time mm -hmm. like what kind of story was that that people told their children yeah. what do you think oh man i'm just i'm thinking like they're they're 
they're crying. Now the question is like the background there that I don't quite understand is like, what's the context of that crying? Are you imagining it that crying when the temp- when they begin to rebuild the temple after they've returned? Is it just like an emotional outpouring? It's just like all the emotions or are they crying? I mean, some have suggested that they're crying because when they see this, this, this foundation and this new effort, they're actually pretty disappointed because they're remembering the splendor of the old house and they're seeing how pathetic the new one is. I was wondering that's about one that. way to read it. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know. I think it does. Do you think there's a way that's way, more, is there a way that's more natural to read the text there that the people are crying because like out of disappointment or just because it's just a rush of emotions? I feel like both, you know, I mean, t- for, from my perspective, when I'm feeling it, I'd have to feel something super strongly to actually get to the cry point. So mm. I'm imagining it's some combination. You and I are not really criers. Are no. We? With no aspersion on the criers. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm related to a crier, and I, I don't think know how I, she does it. I think her life's happier because of it. I think if whatever. I cried more, I'd be a better person. Yeah, yeah, something. me too, but I just It's don't. hard to just make it happen. Yeah, right? I'm not one of those people who can just, like... <laughs> well, there are people, right? They can just be like, I'm sure there's someone listening to this who's like, they can, if they, if you give them like 10 seconds, they can cl- cry legitimate tears. Oh, I'm always jealous of that. That's pretty but intense. But yeah, but when we think about the, the, the kind of grief, the kind of mourning, I, I like this exiles section yeah. because I think it, there's a kind of universal human experience here mm-hmm. to this, this loss mm-hmm. and it's haunting. It's, it's very haunting. If okay, I wonder if for our text today we could read, some, we could go back to the book of Ruth. I think I just, we should. We're so excited about Ruth in yes. some ways, and even though it doesn't really continue the story of exile, we're including it this week for the reasons we already discussed the pattern, all that. I wonder if we could read Ruth chapter three and discuss it, which is the chapter in which Ruth proposes to Boaz. This is kind of a risque chapter. Uh, Let's is, see what we find. This is a debated chapter. Okay, so what has happened in this book? A woman named Ruth yes. has married married someone. Yes. Her, her Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. Well, her husband dies and um actually she and um it's it's her sister, right? Well, they her, Orpha? Yes. I'm doing this totally from memory. Orpa. Orpa. Yeah. He, that's, where Op- that's where Oprah Winfrey gets her name is from that I've Orpah. That. It's from a mistake on her birth certificate. Oprah, in fact, said this that's during an interview. That's super cool, yep. actually. Yep. Um, yeah, so their husbands die, and um, they're both grief-stricken, and mm-hmm. they go to their mother-in-law, and they want to be with her, but their mother-in-law tells them, hey, you're young, you've got lives to live. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to my homeland, but you go back to your parents. I think with the, the idea that they could marry and start a new life and, right. and be better taken care of in their home, land right one of them does um orpa does but ruth um insists on staying with her mother-in-law so she comes to back to her homeland um her mother-in-law is upset in fact she like renames herself mara right to bitter like she right. wants to be t- um and uh then so they're po- they're poor and then they basically um eke out a living benefiting from Israel's um, social support network at that time, which meant like getting the the um, food that they needed and sustenance from kind of like farming leftovers. Mm-hmm. And but through the course of that, she meets this guy, and his name is Boaz. She meets a guy, a landowner, and he seems to have some interest in her. And when he 
he does it's very cute actually it's kind of like a meet cute in those um romantic comedies he instructs his workers to like leave a little extra for ruth give her extra food naomi notices she's no fool mm. and she gives her daughter instructions and this That's is what where we are. And this is what we're <laughs> going to read. This is Ruth chapter three. Yep. Let's read it. Every other verse, the whole chapter. We'll get the whole. We'll get the whole proposal, and oh. the plan, and the proposal all That's in one right. shot. Are you going to start? Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> Go for it. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, I need, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you." Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he <laughs> went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask for all the assembly of my people for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But that now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay his uh, at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures for, of, of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. One thing, this next of kin language could come off really strange unless we understand something about Israel's legal system around marriage, namely sometimes referred to as leveret marriage, L-E-V. I-R-A-T-E, leveret marriage, which is a kind of a, it's, it, to us, it's certainly going to sound like a bizarre social custom whereby if a man and a woman are married and they fail to have kids and the man dies, if that man has a brother or a next of kin, he can also then marry the woman and have kids through her. Ha they'll have kids, but those kids don't legally belong to the new husband. They belong to the dead husband. To keep his line and his name alive, which is a little, a, a little, a little odd to think of. Yes, for sure. there's a really strange. There are actually several strange stories about leveret marriage in the Bible, and I think it's kind of helpful to understand it as a legal sort of like family insurance mm -hmm. policy. I mean, I think that's the only way it makes sense to me because it's sort of like how do you make sure things run and 
keep the mm-hmm. right people secure and keep mm-hmm. the right family order. You know, I think right. that's kind of how to understand it. But there are lots of times when people sort of either question it or try to subvert it. Like there's this weird story with Judah and Tamar um, that in some way is dealing with this this idea of like who, you know, what do you do with the daughter-in-law when when somebody dies <laughs> genesis chapter 38 yeah yeah um and there's a lot of it in fact jesus actually gets asked a question about leverett marriage so i think it's a really interesting arrangement that would feel very different to um you know it's it's not going to feel familiar to most right. people so, in our society. so the fact that boaz is actually now now boaz isn't the brother of one of the dead husbands he's but he's but he's a relative He's part of the line of kin. So they are related. You could maybe think of them in a way if you wanted to think of them as like second cousins or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, that could that could make you feel weird about their relationship. But in this context, it's not weird. Okay? Well, in That's all of human history, it's a recent development that you wouldn't marry someone who's a little closerly part of your family group. Related That's to right. You. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. all of the all of the, the men, the ancestors in Genesis go back to the family group to find a wife. That's how they do it. Yeah. So, so I think that. So get over it. OK, that's what they're doing. <laughs> it's weird. We know it's weird. We know they it's even weird. do it in Jane Austen. So it's actually yep. really recent development. Anyway. So, so it's cool. OK. So <laughs> OK. What what do you I don't know as I, I don't want to like. Well, I was going to say, I don't want to make this too gendery, but the, actually the story is super gendered. Like right, the issue right. is like, this is very much like men and women in this book. In fact, there's a famous author, Jack Miles, in writing about the book of Ruth. He says, the only thing men do well in the book of Ruth is die, which is kind of like a fascinating thing. Like, <laughs> right? He doesn't think Boaz does anything well, right. That, wh- what about this? What's your impression of Boaz? What's your impression as a reader of Boaz? Is he, is he an upstanding guy? Is he kind of dumb because he has to be proposed to and told what to do in the uh, story? I think that, you know okay so I have so many thoughts when I'm experiencing the story (laughs) yes because I sort of think like there there are certain cultural things that are just different now so like this idea that the young know better than the old Mm. is a very recent development Mm. so this idea like it's such an American thing where like kids are going to strike out you're going to go to college and you're going to know more than your parents and all that kind of stuff like for most of human history it would just be well understood that Naomi is the one to follow, right? Right. Because she's the wise older woman. Right. So we don't really have the same kind of value structure. So I think when you read it through the lens of Naomi being like this, I imagine her as like this matriarch, like this trustworthy kind of wise Mm -hmm. figure Mm -hmm. who's, who Ruth is asking for advice. I, I don't know about you, but, um, so I love the, the matriarchal stuff. I think that's kind of really fun and interesting and it's, it's different than our culture. Um, but this is like, uh, kind of risque. I mean, you're the Bible scholar. This seems like a little, uh, racy. Is this a racy storyline? Here's what I think is racy about it. Um, here's what I think is racy about it. One thing that students have asked me in the years when I've taught this material in smaller settings where students are in person and we can do a lot of back and forth and question, something that will sometimes come up is that students will say, so I don't quite know how to say this, but <laughs> are we supposed to think that these two like, you know, they kind of like, you know, had sex, that they had sex. Yeah, yeah. And here's what I say to that question in this, in this, and, and so the first, the first response to that is like, well, the story doesn't say that. The Bible, as you know, oh, students, narrates sexual encounters very bluntly. Yes, Using yes. very blunt language. That language is not used here. However, there is something racy about the story. And here's what's racy about it. Two-part two part raciness. 
Racy part number one is just the general setting. She's coming to a place where women clearly are not allowed a threshing floor where men are working. And there's there's booze involved. There's clearly alcohol yeah. involved. And she comes and she's supposed to like basically get in bed with him. Although like in this kind of like circumscribed way, like by un like how are you supposed to imagine the uncovering of the feet? It's like so bizarre, right? Can you imagine yeah. students? Don't do this, but can you imagine sneaking yeah, into please don't Can do you imagine not sneaking into someone's dorm room and like pulling the blanket off of a guy's feet and like climbing into his bed at his feet yeah, that's in the dorm. Yeah, that's super creepy. So it's you as, did not hear us saying you did to, not hear say me, to do that. But do I think if you imagined how risky that would be, mm-hmm. that's how risky this is. So there's that. There's that piece. I like that part. It's actually yeah. very suspenseful. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is he seems like appreciative mm-hmm. of her. Especially when he says you didn't go after younger men. So right. I, I I read that and I sort of assume right. that she's much younger than him. Yeah. No, I think that's clearly the way to read it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's something like he's like, you could have kind of, you know, you could have gone with some handsome young guy. You could have done young guy than me. Yeah. I, I guess I was a little charmed so by you're that. charmed by that. Yeah. So, and, I and mean, he, I don't know. And he could I mean, respond. I mean, as a reader, you, you maybe he could have blown up like with anger or been like, how dare you? What are you thinking? That, I think, is only... Now, there's a subtler level of the risque-ness here, though, Mm -hmm. that I think you might miss in a normal way as a reader, which is to say that the word for lie down, shakav in Hebrew, shakav, is a common euphemism for sex. And the reader, or I'm sorry, the, the, the narrator uses the phrase lie down repeatedly in this story, almost to the point of excess. So basically what you're saying is it's not... it. They could have. No, I'm saying that the I well here's what I think the reader is doing. Oh, and there's one more thing too. This doesn't even end. It's so it's like a double entendre. The, yes, I, okay. I would go more in that direction. Also, the word feet is a euphemism. Okay, for, I knew that. I wasn't going to bring it up. The word feet is elsewhere in the Bible a euphemism for genitalia. That yeah. doesn't mean that it is here. But here's what I think is happening. Bottom line, I'll just go for it. I can't believe you brought that up because I was maybe <laughs> I was like it's going to be too far. The students aren't going to no, be ready. But we're like seven weeks in. They're seven. seven You're weeks. never ready really for the Bible. You guys, this is the Bible. You got to read it. You got to understand it for what it is. This is awesome. Okay, ah! here's what I think the narrator's yeah. doing. I don't think the narrator is describing an actual overt sexual act. What I do think the narrator is doing though is writing a sexually charged story using double entendre to get you in the mood for what is about to come, which is that they are going to get married and they're going to have, have a baby have a like baby. right away. I think that's the way to read I, it. Okay, so let me mine. just run this by you. Yeah. I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar, yeah. but I'm going to try an idea out on you. To me, maybe this is a well-known fact in biblical studies. Right. So to me, the story, I mean, the, the, the story of Ruth is an obvious, um, they're setting you up for the story of David, right. for sure. Right. But also for Christian readers, they're setting you up for the story of Jesus, right? Yep. So Ruth, spoiler alert, gives birth to the line that will eventually give us Jesus. Yep. And Boaz strikes me as a kind of proto-Joseph character in this. Like, oh, totally. There's like a kind of a sexy sex scandal Typology. Here thing it comes going again. on. Typology. And then you get a beautiful baby yep. out of it. And there's all kinds of like discussion about what the role of the woman is in the story so i don't know that's kind of how it 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 seemed to me and i really love i mean you know the mary's mother doesn't get talked about much in the christian canon but i love that we get naomi's story the grandmother so you get yeah, a, you get yeah. a grandmother. I love the grandmother and she angle. Gets, and she gets to hold the baby at the end. They talk about her like with the baby on her lap. And I just yep. think that that is such a beautiful image. So if you think about it from the perspective of Naomi, who I, okay, 
both of us have two children. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine the utter like pain and mm. sorrow if you lose you know your your two children right. and what i love about this story is it's a story of restoration yes. where she not only like gets this daughter who voluntarily gives herself to be a part of her family but she gets a granddaughter or grandbaby as well and probably yep. more you know they only yep. tell us about the first one i think well and this is why this story i think is such a perfect exilic theme story because is is it about the pain Absolutely. You can't bypass the pain. You can't no. bypass the disorientation, the death, but it doesn't end there. It's also about the restoration. Yeah. Mm-hmm.